Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast, a show for savers, investors, and entrepreneurs, helping you to stay informed, invest wisely, and achieve the unimaginable. Now, on to the show. Today, my friends, prepare to have your minds blown by the wonders of economics. This is Todd Zempel, host of the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. On the show today, I invited Dr. Dale Matchek. Dr. Dale Matchek is not only a scholar, but a true gentleman. Uh, Dr. Matchek is the economics department chair and professor of economics for Northwood University, which is my alma mater. And not only that, he was somebody who was very pivotal in my understanding of the world and economics. So, Dr. Matchek, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Todd. That's uh, that's a very nice introduction. Now, Dr. Matchek, when I look back at my education path, one of the things that initially drew me to Northwood was this concept of entrepreneurialism. And Northwood has embodied that in what's called the Northwood idea. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly that means? I think I can. It might be hard to um, put it simply, but uh, like you, I also came to Northwood for the Northwood idea. So I taught at other places um, and, you know, public universities. Uh, I taught a little while at Cornell. Uh, but Northwood offered something that the other schools didn't offer, and that is their their core values, Um the Northwood idea is the name they give to their philosophy. And uh, just to give you a little background, Northwood started in, in the late 1950s. Um, it began as uh, a brainstorm by a couple of 20-year-old or 20-something-year-old faculty members at Alma College, which is close to where we're located in Midland, Michigan. And... Um, they wanted to offer a different kind of business education. And um, what they realized was that uh, business is not just about, you know, technique. It's also about character and leadership. And so they realized that they wanted that to be part of their curriculum. And they truly believed in the American dream and the free enterprise system. And they saw that uh, many people were losing faith in freedom at that time for various reasons. Many people were looking to, uh, you know, a more top-down model such as, you know, what they used in Japan or uh, uh, what they're using in China now. Um, he, they really felt that an entrepreneurial economy, um, a dynamic economy, an economy in which people were free to pursue their ideas, to, um use their creativity and imagination, that that would take us further uh, than any other um, more centralized system. So uh, they, they wanted that to be an important part of their curriculum. And so uh, ultimately they, re they recruited somebody to lead uh, that effort by the name of Orville Watts. And he put together, I guess, the classic formulation of the Northwood idea and, and that's the one I'll share with you. For, for Orville Watts, uh, and he takes this from our founders, the Northwood idea has three major components. The first one is its ethical basis. 
and that is a firm belief in individual freedom and responsibility, um, a commitment to uh, live by the moral law, exemplified by the golden rule, and uh, also a belief in private property as an important component of a free society. So the idea of um, that as an ethical foundation, and then add to that um, the importance of character, and, and in particular, uh, the value of hard work and sacrifice as a way not only of making the world better, leaving a legacy behind, but, but as a way of developing meaning in your life. And uh, frankly, as a way of, of becoming satisfied with your work. And so for, for Orville Watts, business was a vocation. It was a calling. And um, he wanted our students to understand just how important business is to human flourishing. And, and what a challenge it, it, it uh, places on business leaders um, for, for their own development. So he said that might be the most important aspect of the Northwood idea, uh, the opportunities that a, a career in business provides to people to develop themselves and their communities. And then finally, uh, the third component was this importance of business. Um, as the source of our prosperity, as the mainspring of human progress, uh, he firmly believed and taught that uh, we're social beings. Social cooperation is what has made us so productive. It's what has allowed the great mass of people in our own day to escape poverty and to live comfortably. And to be honest, it's business that makes that possible. It's business that makes that cooperation more productive. It's business that organizes the resources that we need, that capitalizes on the ideas produced by science or, or, or in the arts and, and makes those uh, commercially viable and, 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 and makes it possible to create employment for people to raise their family and uh, for the government to finance education for all of us and uh, all the other things that we take for granted in, in, in the modern world are, are basically made possible because we have business people who are coordinating that and making that happen. So he believed that it was an honorable profession, just as honorable as any other that we can think of as a teacher, minister, doctor, and that as long as we approach it in that way, um, we're going to have a free and prosperous economy. He's, he's very concerned, though, that people misunderstand business and take it for granted. So if we who are engaged in business don't know how to defend it, uh, then, frankly, it's, it's pretty easy for regulations and taxes to really constrain um, the freedom of business leaders and and, um, you know, they're going to have to answer to a lot of people, just not not only their customers, but um, basically they're going to be regulated and uh, taxed to the point where it's just very difficult to pursue a career in, in business. So that in, in a nutshell, those three components 
a solid ethical foundation with an emphasis on individual freedom and responsibility, a um, commitment to hard work and thrift, and uh, that's the source of human progress. And then finally, the importance of business in fostering uh, human cooperation and making it more productive, in particular, freedom for business enterprise. Those are the components of the Northwood idea. Now, for me personally, not only hearing, but but really understanding that message was pivotal in my career trajectory. Um, you know, and, and so often in the media, business is vilified. You know, the rich keep getting richer. Um, what do you say to opponents of the free enterprise system? Well, first of all, um, I, I, I kind of follow Milton Friedman's strategy for communicating with people. He always believed that we have a lot more in common, perhaps, than we think. And I try to figure out where uh, the critics of our free enterprise system are coming from. What is their real uh, concern? What's their primary concern? And what you find is a lot of them have a real compassion for um, people that are poor, um, people that uh, are marginalized. And, and so uh, I, I, first of all, try to form common ground. But where I might differ from them, and this is what I try to clarify, it's just that I think free enterprise is and continues to be the best way to help people get out of that poverty, uh, to help people solve those problems and achieve their dreams. And I think the evidence is on my side. So when you start talking about what we share with, with other people in terms of just basic aspirations, we want human flourishing. We want people to be able to raise a family and raise it in a relative amount of comfort to enjoy that family vacation where you make memories and uh, you know that retirement that you look forward to instead of you know worrying whether it will ever be possible. All those things that we value are things that I think the free enterprise system is more likely to deliver than some of the alternatives uh, that people sometimes turn to. So. For me, it's an argument about means rather than goals. And uh, when I show people, for example, correlation between economic freedom and uh, poverty rates, they're much lower the higher the rate of economic freedom. When I show them uh, poverty rates where there's more economic freedom, poverty rates are much lower. When I share with them even something like the UN Human Development Index, this is an index that keeps track of things like, uh, you know, women's rights in a particular culture, uh, literacy rate, infant mortality rate. Now, we think of these things as non-market goods, and they are, but they're not unrelated to the market because, as it turns out, these human welfare indexes are much higher in countries that extend the most economic freedom and have the most, uh, the highest levels of entrepreneurship in their economy. So um, I think if you care about these, these things, uh, then you should be supportive 
of capitalism. You should be supportive of the market economy. I also try to, I think, correct some misunderstandings that people might have about capitalism, the way it works, what its effects are, what profit means. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about these things. And some of it is justifiable outrage at the way uh, some businesses have operated, especially uh, the way some governments have created privileges uh, or special protections and uh, created an unloving, uh, an unlevel playing field. Um, those things do create moral outrage, and, and we should be concerned about that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I try to be uh, – I try to find common ground, but then I try to educate as well. Uh, to help people understand why uh, I think we can reach those values through free enterprise. Now, I totally agree with you, but where I tend to see some problems arise um, is when these businesses tend to scale up so large that they are no longer in the communities that they serve, right? We have these big multinational corporations owned by uh, shareholders across the world. And really the duty of the company is to serve the shareholders. Maybe they're a manufacturing firm and they're dumping toxic junk into a river and that goes downstream and, and destroys the drinking water for the community. You know, obviously I know that there's some protections in place for that kind of thing nowadays, but do free markets have limits based on their scale? Well, yeah, if I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that uh, perhaps when you've got ownership, which is scattered geographically, and there's just many owners, none of which exercise a high degree of control, uh, that there, there are problems that can emerge that maybe wouldn't be true of a smaller business where the owner is actively involved in the day-to-day decisions of the company. Now, I don't know if if I've captured that correctly, um, but let's say, for example, you look at the Dow Chemical Company and the history of the Dow Chemical Company. H.H. Dow came to Midland. Uh, that's where Northwood is located back in 1900. And, you know, chemical company, that can create some environmental issues. But I, I was, I wanted to point out that he lived in the community. His employees' children went to school with uh, Mr. Dow's children, and they all drank the local water supply, and they 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 all breathed the same air. And at that stage, uh, you don't really need a lot of oversight um, because you know there's a strong incentive uh, from the owner to to make sure that both for his sake and his employees, that uh, they're, they're behaving responsibly. It, it may be more difficult to carry that through uh, once that first generation, uh, that entrepreneurial generation passes on and the corporation grows. So I do think that there's a role for government, certainly uh, to, to make sure that, you know, our air, our water, the those kinds of regulations are in place, they're rational, and they're enforced. Um, but for the most part, um, I think that the corporations that are often vilified as doing the least good for society 
are often the same ones that do the most good, but the, the stuff that's least appreciated in society. So I'm not sure, Todd, if that's uh, if that addresses uh, the issue you're speaking about, but um, I, I really feel like the contributions that come that these corporations make is underappreciated because people take them for granted. Whereas some of the things that government does, the stimulus check that people are getting in their bank accounts now, uh, those are obvious to people. But the ways in which a business works to you know, make something they rely on more affordable or delivery a little bit quicker or the way that finance works to make sure that capital is devoted to a sector which is creating jobs and making those jobs, you know, higher paying, all these contributions are more or less invisible to people. There's a great editorial uh, in the Wall Street Journal that by now has got to be at least 20 years old. It was written by George McGovern, who once ran as the Democratic uh, candidate for president. And um, he he went into business after he retired from the Senate. And he said, after his company failed, that he wished he had known how hard it is to run a business in this country and how hard government makes it to run a business in this country. Because while he was in government, he just did not appreciate that. And if he had known, he would have governed a lot differently. Well, I, I, I wish voters uh, understood this. Um, Unfortunately, I think most voters don't don't really appreciate how hard it is and, and how important it is uh, for entrepreneurs to be able to to do the things they do. Now, this concept of free enterprise, the fact that business is good for society, that capitalism is good and has positive effects. Now, that, this is not something that's being uh, taught in the schools today. What are your thoughts on the state of higher education in the U.S. today? <laughs> well, uh, you definitely hit a sore spot with me. <laughs> I'm very concerned, very concerned. I, you know, <laughs> I came to Northwood because of its values, but at a time when it was reasonable to expect that these ideas would have been relatively common at other institutions of higher education around the country. Maybe they didn't emphasize it as much as we did. But in the United States, at least, I think there was, at the time I started my career, an appreciation for the benefits of our American system. But that's come under attack, and uh, we could go into a lot of reasons for that. But I would be very concerned um, working for uh, starting my career now at one of these other institutions. I'll tell you, uh, when, when we recruit uh, new faculty here, and I talk to these new faculty members and what they're expected to go through, it reminds me of the Cultural Revolution in China where um, people were expected to, to take a party line on things in order to qualify for employment. Um, and if they weren't, 
then perhaps they had to be re-educated. And, and it's really a career risk at some places now to say some of the things that I've said here in the podcast. Uh, for, for, for new faculty members that don't have tenure, um, they're self-censoring. Um, there are departments that are cropping up that are Marxist in their outlook, that are anti-capitalist in their instruction. And uh, they're serving on tenure committees and, and they're indoctrinating students. And it's not a good situation at many places. I do think that in most places, uh, the engineering departments, the kind of STEM fields are, are less affected, but even those now are definitely being becoming woke. Um, and I know I don't I don't want to use that in a pejorative sense. I just want to say that in terms of a university being a place where diversity of viewpoints is encouraged and where a student can expect to hear uh, you know a, a lot of different ideas and to make up their own mind, I think that's happening less and less. I totally agree, but do you think this is just the result of well-intentioned, ill-informed people, or do you think it's something more intentional and nefarious? Perhaps implants from the Chinese Communist Party. What are your thoughts? I mean, maybe, Todd, but <laughs> I think we got plenty of homegrown uh, <laughs> radicals. And I'm not even sure they realize where their ideas originate. Um, some of them are conscious of it. Some of them are not. And it's, you're right. There's reason to be suspicious. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what's happening now is part of a strategy put into place uh, by a number of Marxist intellectuals back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. And it's, uh, you know, it's called a long march through our institutions. And they, they understood that if, you know, they're going to have an influence, uh, you need to be in positions where you can uh, control certain media outlets or uh, college departments or um, even businesses. So uh, it's, it's actually laid out there if you want to look at the writings of people like Antonio Gramsci, who is kind of considered the father of this movement, people from the Frankfurt School uh, back in the 1940s, uh, more influential than ever. These are people heavily influenced by the theories of Karl Marx. What makes them different from uh, people in the past, uh, or I guess the traditional Marxist, is Marx thought there would be a revolution where the workers would rise up against the capitalists, and that didn't happen. Because capitalism was delivering the goods, wasn't it? It was making workers better off. So it had to shift to a cultural kind of class warfare. And, uh, you know, oppression had to take different forms. And so the ideas of Marx were kind of translated into a new uh, new types of applications. And um, so I would say that what we have in academia now, I would call it cultural Marxism. Sometimes goes by some other names, but uh, whether there's somebody behind it or not, 
it's hard to say, but by now it's taken solid root and we've got a lot of homegrown uh, Marxist in our institutions. And it seems like we've been moving in that direction for a while now, but uh, it seems that COVID has really accelerated that move. I mean, one of the things that really creeps me out is when you go to the World Economic Forum's website and, and read about their uh, Great Reset policy. Essentially, what they're saying is never let a good crisis go to waste. Let's use this opportunity in COVID to implement a number of changes. And on the surface level, a lot of those changes, yeah, they, they sound great. But really what it is, it's a move towards a more command-controlled economy versus a free market economy. And another thing that really just bothers me about this whole quote-unquote great reset policy is even the name. I mean, it sounds an awful lot like the Great Leap Forward, which was China's communist revolution. Um, what are your thoughts on how COVID has impacted the free market system? Yeah, COVID has had, you know, the COVID has a lot of lessons for economists to unpack. Um, for one thing, I think that COVID is a great demonstration of how bottom-up solutions uh, are often, well, I would say almost always preferable to top-down solutions. So we could talk about the ways in which um, government responded to COVID. One of the lessons uh, that I take away from it is government suspended a lot of the rules and regulations that are normally in place in order to speed up the solutions that we needed. And even having done that, uh, they still managed to slow things down. So it's my belief that, that there are literally thousands of people that have perished in this pandemic uh, precisely because of the rules and regulations we had in place to keep them safe. And, uh, you know, without getting into the details of that, I would say that is one of the potentially positive things that could come out of COVID. A, a quick look at some of the unintended consequences of what I call safetyism. Um, regulations designed to make sure nothing bad ever happens to anyone, which ends up essentially guaranteeing that something bad will happen to a lot of people. On the political side, what I'm concerned about here is what I see in people. And I guess they're perhaps uh, acquiescence to the huge increase in government that we've seen as a result of COVID, the uh, stimulus package, which I think is a temporary basis, was perhaps needed, but I also think highly politicized, poorly designed, uh, with some real inequities. In any case, um, the fact that I, this will possibly go down as uh, a, a moment where big government uh, came to the rescue of our economy. I think that's a dangerous narrative. Uh, the power that government uh, took to itself to make these draconian uh, restrictions on people. I mean, here in Michigan, uh, I suppose you're probably aware, um, you know, we had a lot of people unhappy with the governor. Um, and even though I think there were some people that were overreacting to the governor's policies. There's no doubt that 
you know, they made no sense in many cases, and they really uh, bordered on uh, what is constitutionally acceptable. I mean, as far as common sense is concerned, I, I don't know, Todd. Uh, you've probably had more podcasts where you've talked about COVID, but I mean, here's an example. Uh, the decision that we're going to decide some workers are uh, essential. And we're going to use that as the basis of who's allowed to work and who isn't allowed to work. And oh, by the way, we are at the top going to decide who is essential and who isn't. Now, that's one way you can do it. But here's another way, and I think a better way. Who is at risk? Which workers are vulnerable to infection uh, and perhaps live with people that are vulnerable? And maybe those people should be encouraged to not go to work or to work remotely. And uh, if we had done that, uh, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I don't know how often I've been at a grocery store or another store considered essential, and I've dealt with an elderly employee there. And then I realized there's a lot of people that are not particularly vulnerable to this disease, and they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to go to work. And so to me, it makes sense. Stop sending money to everybody willy-nilly. Take the spending and focus it on those people that are vulnerable and protect them. I think a more targeted program would have made a lot of sense. Um, I mean, this wrecked havoc with Michigan because as our tourism industry relies on a seasonal, uh, you know, income, you close down our marinas, you close down our boat dealerships, you close down the travel that takes place. To me, that was just not a sensible approach. But I think the narrative is that as long as it saves one life, it was worth it. Here's a, again, I don't know, people don't understand. People were postponing healthcare. People were, you know, uh, foregoing their cancer screening visits. There's trade-offs in economics. It's never about, well, let's get this done and pretend there's no other costs involved. And I think there's a, a great deal of evidence to suggest that, um, the government response shortened life expectancy on balance rather than increased it. I don't think that's the narrative people are going to take away, and that's what worries me most. Well, Dr. Matchak, thank you so much for your time today. I hope that uh, as things progress in the world, you come back on and share more of your thoughts with us. Well, that sounds good. I'll be, be glad to come back. I enjoyed it. Now, folks want to hear more from you. They can do that at the upcoming Northwood University Freedom Seminar. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about what that is? Sure. Thanks for uh, giving me that chance. Uh, so Northwood University, as part of its uh, core values, does try to educate people uh, in the community and around the country. And one of the ways we do that is with our Freedom Seminar, which has been going on for 40 years. And... Um, this year, everything is different. This year, we're focused on uh, racial and uh, gender equality and public policy. And we approach it 
uh, through the lens of the two American dreams that we care about. Uh, there's the one, the version, um, I guess, symbolized in our Statue of Liberty, right? We are the land of opportunity where you, by your own hard work and imagination, can make a better life for yourself and for your children. And there's that kind of equality. This is the kind of thing that Lincoln was talking about when he said, uh, you know, that we are a country conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And then when Dr. Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said he had a dream. And that was a dream that one day his children would be judged by not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That is also an inspiring dream and something that thus far has been somewhat difficult for America. So we're going to unpack those two American dreams at the Freedom Seminar. It's held in May. It spans four days. we got speakers coming in from all over the country. It is a virtual event that anybody can join. I've given just Google Northwood. Freedom Seminar, you'll find our website and uh, you can come to one or come to all of the events that we've scheduled there. And I encourage you to do that. Well, folks, that'll do it for today. If you want to learn more about Dr. Madchak or Northwood University, you can find them at northwood.edu or feel free to reach out to us at wealthqb.com. information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management LLC, its producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast. Thank you.